Welcome back to another episode of Debatable with your hosts, Nina and Kyle. So we're all in quarantine, and if you're privileged enough to be able to just stay at home right now, you're probably passing the time watching movies and turning off your brain. But did you know that even the most popcorniest movies have something to say, and that you can use movies as a way to explore debatable ideas? And if you've been listening to me, you probably noticed that I keep talking about movies and anime a lot of the time when we're talking about some ideas. And there's a reason for that. So we don't agree with the idea that debating is just for the academic elite. We believe it's for everyone. Even if the things you know about the most are superhero movies and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So you should never stop yourself from trying debate just because you don't think you know enough. Because there's something here for everyone. There are debates all around you and you don't even notice them and you might even be taking them for granted. All you really need to do is to take the time to think about what it is that you're watching, whatever it is that you're doing or whatever it is you're feeling. You'd be surprised to know how much you can say when you just take a harder look at what's already in front of you. So in this episode, we wanted to consider the superhero um, film genre, movies that critics tend to say are formulaic with nothing to say. Even according to Martin Scorsese, it's not real cinema. So we found that there's a lot of philosophical underpinnings with superheroes. So let's philosophize with them today. So we're going to start by defining the features of superheroes before the, the trend set by the MCU, which is secret identities. So what exactly is a secret identity, though? Well, to me, it's an alter ego that's not meant to be known to others. It's about the personal identity and not the public identity. People not wanting to know who they are. Spider-Man was kept hidden from the public. Batman doesn't want anybody to know he's Bruce Wayne. Superman goes by Clark Kent. What are the purposes of secret identities? Why do they hide behind a mask? Well, the theory is that they wear the mask because they want to become something else. So it's not really about the person but a concept. Beneath this mask, there is more than flesh. Beneath this mask, there is an idea. And ideas are bulletproof. So we would say that Peter Parker is not the same as Spider-Man because even though they share the same body, they don't represent the same idea. Peter Parker represents himself. But Spider-Man can represent a lot of different things. For example, if you grew up in the early 2000s, the Sam Raimi films, it's... With great power comes great responsibility. But if you're growing up in the late 2010s... Anyone can wear the mask. You could wear the mask. Meanwhile, Superman in the DCEU represents hope, apparently. Even though everyone is always sad to see him, and even though he kind of looks like there's no hope in the world, but the Superman in the 1960s represented something a lot more concrete. Why are you here? There must be a reason for you to be here. Yes, I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way. <laughs> but there are also superheroes without superhero uh, secret identities. Tony Stark, you look at Steve Rogers, they're both very famous people in the MCU because they never hid their personal identity. But what do they stand for? What does it mean when Tony Stark says, I am Iron Man. Beyond the simple interpretation that Tony Stark wears some suit, what does Iron Man itself mean? On one hand, you could say it's capitalism. We're safe. America is secure. You want my property? You can't have it. But I did you a big favor. I have successfully privatized world peace. But you could also argue that he now represents big government. We need to be put in check. Whatever form that takes, I'm game. If we can't accept limitations, we're boundaryless. We're no better than the bad guys. Steve Rogers, Captain America, on the other hand, represented government propaganda in the 40s. 
And Cap- in Captain America the First Avenger, he even had a nod to Captain America's meta history as a piece of propaganda when they went on a cross-country tour singing the Star-Spangled Man with a Plan. can storm a beach or drive a tank but there's still a way all of us can fight series e defense bonds each one you buy is a bullet in the barrel of your best guy's gun but obviously this changed and he ended up presenting big government regulation if we sign this we surrender our right to choose what if this panel sends us somewhere we don't think we should go what if there's somewhere we need to go and they don't let us we may not be perfect but the safest hands are still our own It could also be argued that he represents deontology in Civil War from Sharon Carter's speech. Compromise where you can, but where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right, even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no. You move. The point is that Tony Stark and Steve Rogers, they switched places ideologically. But the problem is, if we were always rooting for Team Cap, or if we were always rooting for Team Tony, that means that you followed them not because they believed in a particular ideal, but because of their personalities. But at the same time, because you know their personalities, you end up caring for the things that they care about too. So this is cool because subconsciously, superhero movies demonstrate to you how symbols end up being created. So look at movements. There are pros and cons to members of movements outing themselves. On one hand, the human element of the movement is highlighted. But on the other hand, the ideas they represent might be diluted by their personalities. Right now, we even see that the superhero label or the hero label is even thrust upon people. So look at how governments call their frontliners right now against the coronavirus as heroes. In a way, they have been given secret identities and homogenized as one unit in the world. But that's a discussion for another time, and I don't want to rant too much because that might land me in jail if I say anything wrong. Let's set aside the pragmatic side of using a secret identity for now. On a principled level, could having a secret identity be immoral? Now, Immanuel Kant would say that it's immoral to have a secret identity because it inherently engages in some sort of deception, whether it be through outright lies or just saying the truth but in a misleading way. So Kant is known for deontology, which stands for you know universal moral truths or leads to it at least. So usually to test this, you ask, is there something you wish everyone would do? It's moral if you can universalize the expectation. But with deception, you can't universalize it without leading to incoherence uh, or an attack to truth or hypocrisy. So for example, if you want to say that everyone should tell the truth, um, it would create an incoherence or a hypocrisy if you suddenly go like, except for me, I, I get to have a secret identity, right? So if you look at Superman, you could argue that he's being very hypocritical to to speak for truth and justice in the American way. But he can't even be truthful about who he really is to the public. Another way to arrive at the ontology is by starting from the premise that we should treat people not as a means to an end, but as an end in themselves. So basically, when you're lying to somebody, you are not treating people as... Uh, ends in themselves as complete people because when you're lying you're forcing them to be ignorant about something and you're disrespecting their own autonomy by restricting their choices so you have the right to be informed of things for example and the reason for that is because 
the state supposedly respects your autonomy to act upon that information in a rational manner. But if you're lying to them or you're keeping things from certain people, you're forcing them to be ignorant and you're disrespecting their humanity as a result. So we'll go back to the Superman, uh, Superman, Spider-Man example for a bit. So you you claim that, you know, he might be lying to people and he's hypocritical. And there's, there's some backing to that. And there is a lot of premises that can support that. For one, you could say that Spider-Man doesn't trust people to be able to make rational decisions. Therefore, he doesn't really respect the people he claims to love. Or you could say also that he doesn't respect the people he's defending because he doesn't trust them to accept his identity. And thirdly, you could also say that he doesn't respect himself because he's lying to himself by saying that his identity and his secret identity is necessary to keep that way because he doesn't trust himself to handle the consequences that might come with being Peter Parker. Yeah, so if you notice, the more that Spider-Man in particular keeps his secret identity, the more he keeps his loved ones in the dark, the worse off his loved ones get. Um, They don't have enough information, so they can't prepare themselves from when the arch nemesis or something or other inevitably kidnaps them or threatens them. But if you take a look at the comics, after Peter Parker revealed, revealed his identity, Mary Jane was better able to protect herself from people who are trying to hunt down Spider-Man, for example. So you might think that this is all useless information. We're just talking about superheroes. But actually, there is a lot of issues here that can apply to other situations. So the argument about how it is fundamentally immoral to hide the truth of a person's identity could also be used in debates about having to unmask and register with the government. So maybe debates about anonymous hackers or even debates about online personas. You could formulate a hypothetical argument and philosophical argument that these superheroes are moral paradoxes. But you might be wondering, okay, fine, there is a philosophical argument, but is that a strong argument in the debate? Like your opponent could say that lying is justified because it helps the hero save more people or protect himself. And this brings into view the classic utilitarian versus deontology debate, the thought experiment about lying to save a friend from evil. So, The example goes that you are alone in your house and then your friend comes along and says, hey, can I stay over here because someone wants to kill me? And then you say yes because you're a good friend and you're a good moral person. And then sure enough, later, someone does show up and says, I am a killer. I'm here to find your friend and kill him. As a person, are you supposed to tell the truth or should you lie to the potential killer? Because if you are compelled to tell the truth because that's your conception of morality, then your friend will die as a result. And surely, if that was the case, there are some cases where lying could be considered to be moral. And this is a classic example of utilitarianism. And in fact, this example was used in an NDC grand final like a few years ago. I think it was seven years ago. It's a classic example because it's so visceral, right? Like your friend's life is at stake. Surely these lofty ideals about categorical imperatives and whatnot are less important than the very real problem of causing the loss of life. And you can see superheroes use the same narrative. So they hide their identities to protect the people around them. Usually it's loved ones or family members, but usually it's their significant others, which never made sense to me, but that's a that's another discussion. So these people might be targets if their identity becomes public. So this became a problem for Iron Man in situations where Pepper Potts was the, star- was the target. Then again though, even if Spider-Man had a secret identity, Mary Jane still got kidnapped a lot. I think in Spider-Man 1, 2, and 3, even if he tried to hide his identity, 
she was a target. So maybe this really isn't the best argument. But consider also the Watchmen, which is set in an alternate timeline where the world is on the brink of nuclear war, and the antagonist Ozymandias. Spoilers, pala. The antagonist Ozymandias created an artificial alien invasion in the comics or an artificial bomb in the movie that killed millions um, in order to unite the world against a common enemy. So in order to save this planet, I had to trick it. Killing millions? To save billions. Two superpowers retreating from war. Everyone's gonna know what you've done. By exposing me, you would sacrifice the peace so many died for today. Peace based on a lie. But peace, nonetheless. He's right. Exposing Hadrian would only doom the world to nuclear destruction. Would it be justified for Ozymandias to do that, even if it would be the more utilitarian thing to do? In fact, the Marvel Civil War, the comic, the comic, I mean, um, on which the movie Captain America Civil War was based on, but uh, was essentially a conflict between utilitarianism and deontology. Because on the surface, the conflict was the same in the comics. It's about superhero registration. But Tony was hiring and registering villains like Venom, for example, to hunt down Captain America and creating entities. And um, I think he made a synthetic Thor that ended up murdering people and capside. And all of that was because of this utilitarian ideal that the ends justify the means. So you can apply this to a lot of different questions. How about a society where a utopia results from the perpetual suffering of a single child and adults hide the truth from children to preserve the utopia? Or how about a progressive politician lying about his beliefs, pandering to the oppressive majority so he could get elected and finally enact progressive policies? How about a political opposition using disinformation networks to fight the dominant party? In the end, these are also things and situations that are not super hero related but still end up using the same philosophical concepts we discussed yeah so we started from the thought experiment about lying and the inviting a killer into your home but these different examples that we just gave you are seem to be more debatable so the tip is that when a really good debater brings up an analogy that seems very very compelling don't let yourself be confined to that analogy you should try to push the logic of that analogy to a grayer area where a debate is more likely to happen. That being said, um, deontologists and all these different examples would echo Rorschach and say, Never compromise. Not even in the face of Armageddon. Though, though I don't think you would want to be quoting Rorschach. Wasn't he a controversial figure in both the comics and the movies and even the series? Yeah, so you do see a lot of uh, white supremacists, alt-right people quote Rorschach and idolize him. But I think that the thing about Rorschach is that he's correct um, but extreme. Like, so while it is deontologist and moral, deontologically moral, to say no compromise, it wouldn't be appropriate for a deontologist to justify killing or discriminating against minorities and these kinds of things because there's no way to correct for the extreme versions of Rorschach's philosophy that I think that his image might be misused. But as for that specific quote, I, I do agree with him. But for the extreme versions, we have to correct for that. We have to hold him accountable for these things. Who is Spider-Man? He's a criminal, that's who he is. A vigilante, a public menace. What's he doing on my front page? So this is where accountability comes in. How do we hold these people accountable to what they say? 
So I think a good example would be Spider-Man again. So J. Jonah Jameson was obsessed with Spider-Man. If you're wearing a mask, you have something to hide. But superheroes are more than mere celebrities. And that's what a lot of people would say. Because they serve the public, supposedly. And therefore, it stands to reason that they should be reasonably expected to have transparency as well as accountability to, to the very same people that they claim to serve. So this dilemma was explored in a Sam Raimi films using the character of J. Jonah Jameson Jr. But it was discussed more in Amazing Spider-Man, weirdly. Um, when Peter Parker was having dinner with the Stacys and he got into a heated conversation with Officer George Stacy. Is assault, assaulting people? I, th- I think most people would say that he was providing a public service. Most people would be wrong. If I wanted the car thief off the street, he'd already be off the street. So why wasn't he then? The car thief was leading us to the people who run the entire operation. Yeah, I'm sure you're aware of the term strategy. I'm saying he's trying to help, and it looks like he's trying to do something maybe the police can't. Something the police can't? The most important thing from that exchange, for me, is that Spider-Man was considering himself to be a public servant. But if he serves the public, shouldn't it make sense that the public should be able to regulate him? That's the question that I don't think The Amazing Spider-Man was able to answer. Actually, none of these movies were able to answer it. Not even Civil War was able to answer why it would be justified to regulate them. So I, I think the reason why it's hard to answer this is because it always happens to extents. So it's not a black and white issue. There are always gradients. So as much as these heroes owe the public, they also act because the public has failed them. This is why we see so many donation drives right now and charities acting because when governments fail to provide, a lot of people step in to fill in that gap. This is also the essence of why a lot of private entities exist and have the ability to act on the failures of the government and on their own sometimes. So it's a complex issue, and I think heroes operate because they believe that as much as the police is trustworthy, they're not doing enough. And that's why vigilantism exists, both in these fantasy worlds and in the real world. So this brings us to... Another really good idea and another really good concept, which is known as the social contract. So who gave superheroes the right to do what they do? Most of them exist in areas where there are democratic institutions and functioning police. To justify vigilantism, is it enough to say that the police can't be everywhere? Why does Batman get to be the judge and the jury? And in the case of Ra's al Ghul, even the executioner? I won't kill you, but I don't have to say. Normally, okay, we'd say, fine, nobody has the right to deprive people of liberties except the state through its police power. But even then, the state can't do it without observing due process. Since vigilantes aren't the state or agents or representatives of the state, vigilantes don't have that right. So now we're getting somewhere. We said that the state had the right to deprive liberties or use violence. And the state also has the ability to have individuals act on its behalf. So the state has all these powers. And these powers are being exercised by people that the state deems worthy, like law enforcement. But who gave the state that right as well? Who gave it these these powers? So this is where the idea of social contract comes in. So social contract is an idea that was first like claimed and first written with this term by Thomas Hobbes by stating that the state of nature is a state of war and therefore something needs to be done about it. Of course, he's not the first person to sort of think about this concept, but he's the first person to give it a name, which is social contract. And because people are selfish, as 
Thomas Hobbes claims, it leads to a socially suboptimal outcome, which is what leads to the prisoner's dilemma. So we exercise our selfishness using violence and not by giving what we owe each other. And this is why we consent to giving some of our power to the state in exchange the state will protect us, therefore, therefore increasing the total number of liberties we have. So we lost our right to use violence whenever we want, but we now have a means to protect ourselves from violence through the state. So that's the sort of engagement that happens. So we give up a lot of our natural state of being and give our powers to a government to make sure that we don't end up back in the state of war. Yeah, but of course, there are lots of criticisms to this. Um, the first one that I can think of is that the premise is wrong. That The premise I say here is that in a state without the government, um, it's a state of war because people are selfish. But I don't think that people are necessarily selfish. In fact, what I could argue is that the reason why the state was created was because people wanted on their own to create a sense of cooperation. But that doesn't mean that the state is worthless. It just means that it's not a necessary evil, but it's something that's born out of something that's more positive. So on a philosophical standpoint, if ever there will be a debate about the nature of the state or something like that, you can use this piece of analysis. But another uh, criticism that I have is that most people don't really consent to the state. Like, you didn't ask a baby who was just born whether or not that baby consents to being a member of this particular state. Okay, but there's a rebuttal to my rebuttal where people say that there's implicit consent when you benefit from the state. So I have heard a lot of people saying that, well, there's implicit consent the man if the baby grows up in the state and then accepts um, education or healthcare or other state welfare, then um, there's implicit consent to being a member of that state. But I still think that this is also a flawed way of thinking. Yeah, so I'm going to add a rebuttal to the rebuttal to your criticism, which is that even if there's implicit consent, it's a really bad standard. Because first, people had no choice but to accept the benefits because alternative is that they die, you know? So if they were born in a public hospital, they have no choice but to end up benefiting from the state because the alternative is literally death. So second, imagine other scenarios where people feel like they have no choice but have to behave in a certain way so that they prevent danger. So for me, a good example would be feminism because a lot of men and a lot of meninists and people who are extremely conservative, they argue that women shouldn't complain and shouldn't want anything different because we've benefited from so long because the patriarchy protected us, the men protected us from wars, etc. But that's not really something you can consent to because we weren't given opportunities to protect ourselves. We were not given opportunities to like make a living for ourselves. So really, even if you can implicitly consent, it's a bad standard because it's a bit coercive. Yeah, I was also thinking something like sexual harassment where men tend to go like, oh, you were asking for it because you were wearing this, you were wearing blah, blah, blah. You got yourself drunk. And to a lot of men, those count as implicit consent to sexual activity when it's really not. So um, I, I think that for very important things like being able to be part of a state or um, sex, for example, it's not enough that you have um, implicit consent. Like, let's frown on implicit consent. Let's look at express consent more. But the last criticism I have in mind is even if people are selfish, what happens when a state fails? And this is something that 
most debaters actually talk about when you have debates about vigilantism or eco-terrorism being justified and things like that. What you want to look at is institutional design. Um, are there correcting mechanisms for that state failure? And if all else fails, what should happen? Should power just go back to the people? Um, and for a lot of us, that seems just about right, considering that in actual contracts, um, a breach by one party gives the other party the right to resolve the contract and compel parties to restore the situation existing prior to the contract. But if that was the case, doesn't that mean that the social contract theory at least hypothetically admits the possibility that violence or selfish lawlessness could at some point be justified? Isn't that contrary to our goals as a society with or without the state? So I think that in this gray area of state failure that vigilantes tend to operate and justify themselves. Some of them do it because democratic institutions that were supposed to keep people safe have totally failed. Like in Batman Begins, where Ra's al Ghul just straight up said, You are defending a city so corrupt we have infiltrated every level of its infrastructure. But there's a gray area here too. If there's a lot of crime because the state has failed, it's most likely that many of the common thugs or robbers are also victims of state failure. The most iconic example is the Joker, who in The Killing Joke and the movie Joker that was recently released, he was a victim of circumstances, of rampant poverty, and of state indifference. The same forces that pushed Batman to do good are the same forces that pushed Joker to do harm. That's why many people fear the vigilantes who kill alleged drug users without due process. It's them trying to be Batman when they're often jokers in the end. The problem is that it's hard to know for certain which one you are, and you are hardly the person in the best position to decide. This is why, you know, one of the famous quotes that you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain. That's probably because in that gray area of being a vigilante, you don't really know when the good ends and the bad starts. Yeah, so if the power to use violence is given to an individual, the same risk of abusing that power is present. But I think the difference might be that at least if it's the state, we can point to the state and say, this was wrong. But you can't point to individuals who hide behind masks because you don't know who they are. And in the end, I think superhero stories are sometimes said to be the modern mythology. And we made myths so that we could make sense of the world around us through the fantastic, through the amazing, and the incredible. But just like the myths of old, they are accessible and distilled pieces of wisdom. There's something that you can learn from them. They're morality tales, they're philosophical thought experiments, reflections of our culture. But just like the myths, we should seek to take these lessons to the real world with a critical mind. Or else we might end up worshipping a supposed hero who represents no idea except his own ego and refuse to hold him accountable. How do we end we, this? I think that I think we could just end it that way. We don't have to always say goodbye. Okay.